Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. I think the overlap between venture capital and quoted stocks is particularly interesting and we're going to try to explore more of this in this podcast. More and more IPOs are from tech, more and more quoted stocks are subject to disruption. And today I'm delighted to be joined by two of the top UK players in these two fields. Spencer Crawley co-founded First Minute Capital in 2017 with Brent Hoberman, a former guest in this podcast. The First Minute Capital Fund currently has 270 million under management from an investor base, including an astonishing 111 founders of unicorn billion dollar technology businesses. Pete Davis is a partner of Lansdowne Partners and head of the Global Developed Market Strategy, a fund which he started in 2001 with Stuart Roden, also a former guest in this podcast, as a UK equity long short fund. It outgrew that strategy and became the Global Developed Markets Long Short Fund also investing a small percentage of assets in early stage private companies. In 2020, the fund was reorganized and unquoted assets spun into a separate vehicle and the quoted fund became a long only fund. In this conversation, which we completed just days before the flotation of Oxford Nanopore, a major success story for the Lansdowne strategy, and we spent quite a bit of time discussing the UK venture scene, we concluded with a look back at the late 1990s tech boom and a discussion with Pete on why today is different. Pete's one of the great thinkers of the investment world, and this was a fascinating discussion. Do please listen to the end. This podcast is intended to educate as well as entertain, and it has a more serious purpose. We are big supporters of the Financial Times Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign a new charity which you can check out on ft.com forward slash FLIC. It's the most disadvantaged in society who often get taken in by financial scams, by payday loans and similar artful devices to part people with their money. We can change this. It's a straightforward task of education. This really is a great cause and I urge you please to support it. The podcast is sponsored by Sentio, and I ask them because I use the research platform almost every day. For equity analysts, it's in many respects the ideal tool. If I didn't have a professional platform, I would need several different software systems. Sentio saves me a lot of time and ensures my research can be done in one place. I like it because first, the data is reliable and it aggregates all content. Second, it's easy to use and much more intuitive than some other platforms. Third, it's features I have never seen in other systems. 
My favourite is the ability to go into a 10K and extract the history for a particular data table. If I want to see the trend in a parameter, and I often do this, I snap my fingers without having to dig through multiple 10Ks. It's much faster and easier. But most important is the price. There's a huge price advantage over other systems. If you're a smaller fund or even a larger fund equipping analysts, Sentio is definitely worth looking at. Visit sentio.com forward slash BTBS for behind the balance sheet for more details. And we have a great bonus for listeners of the podcast. My lovely publisher, Herman Haas, is offering a discount off my book, The Smart Money Method, How to Invest Like a Hedge Fund Pro. Go to their website and use the code POD25, P-O-D-25. Spencer, Pete, welcome to the podcast. Now, look, you guys have got a number of things in common, including the fact that you both run early stage venture funds. Although for you, Pete, it's only a part-time job. Did you both envisage ending up in, in investment or was it serendipitous? Spencer, would you like to go first? Of course. And Steve, thank you for having me. Uh, the absolute unit was not a certain path at all. Uh, my undergraduate degree was history. And then I went to work in Russia uh, for Goldman Sachs and joined a spin-out uh, firm focused on emerging markets. And it was really thanks to my co-founder, Brent, who I met five and a half years ago, who you've had on the podcast recently. And he was starting a new early stage venture firm and wanted someone to come and help me. Um, and I think actually about five plus years ago, our first joint sort of meeting slash pitch in person was with Pete. So it's it's funny coming full cycle. Um, but it was really, I've been part of a uh, the formation of a fund, the spin out fund I alluded to, post Goldman. And so I felt I knew something of the piping and infrastructure and legals of what it takes to get a fund started. And I felt I could learn the early stage art, uh, partly from Brent and partly from just doing it on the job. So it was very much accidental. Pete? Well, investment wise, I think probably, I mean, I definitely always wanted to get in. As soon as I knew about investment, I wanted to do it sort of thing. So um, the route to get there was slightly circuitous and you know, inevitably where one starts, I started at Mercury Asset Management and there's always a bit of randomness about where you start. I, I've had tremendous good fortune that all the places I've, or the, working at Mercury was a fantastic place to learn as well. So, um, and met, made some very, very good friends there as well, which was great. Um, yeah, I think, I think for me, the notion, the twin things that attracted me about investment were one, the need to constantly be current and be dealing with how change evolved in the world and, you know, the, the one, I think rather than the question of why did I start, why am I still doing it? I think that that probably is the answer to that is that it's inherently reinventing both in terms of the world around you and learning from one's own mistakes and trying to improve from that. And then I also really liked, compared to the other jobs I thought about when I was leaving university, although there is a lot of luck involved with every individual outcome, you know, the reality is that the measuring stick was quite objective and you know, you needed to be original to get something right. You know, that combination of originality and objectivity and results was something that certainly, I mean, I don't know what else I would have done, probably not probably not capable of doing much else, but I, I remember thinking about certain other careers and thinking they relied a lot on people's impression of you rather than actually results and often didn't reward originality in the way that, you know, getting an investment, particularly in listed markets, actually, getting a... In, getting an investment decision right requires you to think differently from other people. And that certainly, for me, appeals enormously. Um, in terms of, I mean, you described it as part-time, which I'm going to probably find a better, try and find a better word for. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
<laughs> synergistic with my other listed investment stuff. Um, the way we ended up doing venture was um, twofold, really, actually. One, in a variety of ways that I'm sure we'll come on to, you know, I'd been fairly active in in both directly investing in early stage companies and indirectly, as Spencer says, with him and others, you know, getting involved with structures designed to sort of amplify that. Um, and, you know, coming out, you know, about 18 months ago, it was pretty clear that a lot of, because of that, there were a lot of companies that I'd been involved with for quite a long time that had moved from the state where I don't think personally I'm very good or, you know, it's a skill that I could do semi-part-time, as you describe it. Um, namely the seeding of companies towards a thing that I really wanted to do, which was the development of companies. Mm. And, you know, having just a very wide universe of companies I knew well at that point in time meant that I, A, felt we could differentiatedly do it and B, that it would be easy to combine, not easy, but the combination of skills of listed investing with the access we have to those would be an interesting way to do it for both companies and for our investors. But what made you start out i mean what what was the initial i mean you've been doing it for a long time but you what made you initially get involved in in those early stage um i mean it's the opportunities that i met i mean you know I, I think hopefully i'm always quite curious to to meet people doing interesting things regardless of you know whether there's an immediate correlation with what i'm doing professionally and and through that a we went down a direction of working hard with universities to see how they could make more of the asset they already had, namely the world-class IP, and created various, or we were involved with various structures at an early stage in that. And then separately, you know, just seeing lots, you know, personally just seeing lots of people, young entrepreneurs come to me with business plans. You know, I've always been, I hope, okay, at sort of if somebody's got an interesting idea and wants some of my time, I'll, I'll see them because they'll tell me something I don't know, which is usually a good start. So unfortunately, through doing that, well, fortunately or unfortunately, I ended up investing in quite a lot of those as well, which which has, you know, given another dimension to it. So a combination of just indirectly meeting people and when they do something interesting, wanting to be involved with it and a, a more general approach to the UK of the universities in particular being a real thing where one could make a difference, I think. No, it's funny because there's a lot, I mean, now there's a lot of people doing that. I mean, in this country, obviously, Bailey Gifford are at the forefront and you're seeing, you know, fidelity, even people like Dan Loeb and Third Point in America are now moving into that thing, uh, area. What we haven't seen, and I, I'm wondering why, is venture going in the other direction. And so people who are involved in venture capital starting to invest in quoted markets. And I wonder, Spencer, I mean, what skills will you need to acquire in your team when it comes time to start flipping these successful investments? Because, I mean, that's going to be a very different skill set, isn't it? It is. As an aside, I think Pete's being characteristically modest. I think he'd make for a very good seed investor. <laughs> if, uh, assessing assessing ideas on their merit and, and founders' authenticity, etc. I have a hunch you'd be pretty good. But um, I think, I mean, the first question for a, 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 a firm like ours, which is called First Minute Capital, is whether we should be uh, thinking about this so far, the, the measuring stick, which Pete alluded to, is in early stage venture, a very long one, if that's not straining the analogy, in that your feedback cycle is very, very long. You know, our first fund is 2017 vintage. We won't see, we won't really know whether we've done a good job on that first fund until 25, 26, maybe even 27. So this, the seed world is a, you have to be patient, you have to be an optimist. And I think 
you know, now we've just launched our second fund and, you know, you, you tell your investors, your LPs that it's a, you know, this is a highly illiquid asset class. And as a venture investor, you have to be patient and I think patient with your own assessment of how you're doing, because, you, you know, for us, the biggest KPI is, is up rounds. Who's, who's marking up our portfolio is our Sequoia index writing the series A, are they raising a, a good series B is, is the, is the, are the businesses showing product market fit, et cetera, et cetera. So I think one of the things that I enjoy about Seed is actually I don't have to think about the public markets. I don't have to think about macro, the M&A landscape, the, the, the environment for IPOs. Seed's a little bit acyclical because, because of this time horizon. And there's lots of examples of 08, 09 when Stripe and Square and Airbnb and Uber were all, were all founded. So I think, I think as a Seed investor, you, I used to be in fixed income and or never felt I understood it and felt there were too many parameters going on. And I didn't feel I had a macro worldview that Pete certainly does. Um, so I think Seed, you can be more focused on the entrepreneur, what he or she is building. And I think you have to be comfortable with there being a, a structural information gap. You're never going to have enough information making a seed stage investment. And we were just talking about your angel investing uh, before we started. And I think, so I, I don't see for first minute when we have IPOs in the portfolio, touch wood, that'll be a happy day, whether we hold, hold on to them. We have discussions, of course, and we had a company acquired by Coinbase recently. Uh, and there was a discussion of whether to hold on to those Coinbase shares. In the end, we decided not to because we wanted to recycle some of the some of the proceeds back into, into new companies or follow on investments. Um, but I think the larger funds, of course, Sequoia now has a hedge fund just as Tiger's now doing seed. So there is a convergence, absolutely. And I'm sure people will have lots of thoughts on that. But I think as a seed fund, you don't want to take your eye off the ball in terms of there's such a rich opportunity set in early stage company building in Europe, US, everywhere. Um, we just made our first investment into a Pakistani fintech business last week. You know, you, there's there's so much to be done that I think you want to try to, until you've had first signs of success on, on, on the first fund or two at least, try to stay focused. But if we're sitting here in five years time or 10 years time, I mean, won't there be lots of seed capital guys investing in Corset? I mean, I think I think both jobs are harder than you're giving them credit for. I mean, I think a seeding or seeding done well requires a network within which you're the expert, you know, um, and you know that's both domain specific and also ge often geographically specific. Frankly, I, I think retaining that differentiation is pretty hard. Um, so, and then conversely, you know, being, you know, I mean, yes, there are, I mean, this is to be proven. I think the question of have you known a company for a long, is knowing the company for the longest enough of an advantage in quoted markets to make you better than other quoted investors is, is a hypothesis to be proven, given, you know, as Spencer says, the alternate aspects you don't have. And, and I think the right question to ask, and certainly the one I would ask, you know, in reverse, as it were, is, you know, am I the, I, the question we always ask is, are we the best possible investors for this particular investment? Um, and, you know, the nice thing, I think, for both of us is we've got the luxury of quite a lot of different things we could choose to do. And therefore, you know, one can also ask a second question, which is, is this the thing I'm most expert in versus, you know, X or Y and, and stuff? So I think this question of, I, mean, I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I feel very comfortable that doing f Series B or A, whatever you want to call it, having seen them from seed, but at an arm's length is quite a good position to take a decision there. I think, 
things like bias, home bias, you know, lack of understanding how a layperson might look at them. You know, the quoted investment market requires one to have a set of skills that are different from that. And, and whether the information edge that one had is enough it will be different for different people, but it's not a given, I would say. And maybe two things to add to that. The in, in early state, maybe two differences between private and, and public investment, and I, I wonder if Pete would agree, but is there's an element of persuasion in venture because the best entrepreneurs have choice. So public markets, you choose whether to buy the stock or not or short it or do whatever you want with it. Whereas there's a human dynamic where great entrepreneurs, they have, particularly now, an abundance and choice of capital. So as a venture investor, you're providing a bespoke service. It's a, it, you providing a, and that is changing, that's evolving. We can, you know, how a tiger is shaking things up are really interesting, but nonetheless, you're providing a service to an entrepreneur. So that's something that is totally different mindset to, to public investing. And then in terms of, and Pete alluded to this, like as a seed fund, you access is key. If you're not seeing the opportunity, it doesn't matter if you can underwrite it and persuade them or not. If you're not seeing it, you're not seeing it. And so that's why a lot of the funds, you know, Andreessen do it through Andreessen Horowitz in the US do it through huge media and, and marketing drives according to it because they've got the best portfolio. But you know, there's a brand advantage in, in venture. So I think that's something we think about lots. And I mean, you've got, is it 111 unicorn founders as clients, which is a number that I, I mean, it's certainly hard to believe, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, is that give you a moat and is that widening because you said it's trebled from the first fund and presumably that makes it very difficult for your competitors when a great opportunity turns up because you've got a better network and I suppose for Pete your early investment in in OSI gives you a similar advantage I mean both of you how do you think about these advantages and if you didn't have them, right? so if you were starting with a clean sheet of paper today, you didn't have 111 founders or you didn't have your long history with OSI, how would you develop the moat that you've got now? How would you? I think, um, A, I would say that for me anyway, OSI was a symptom of a network, was something I was able to be part of creating because of a network that one had already built. And, and also, you know, had we not had the capital to create, you know, had we not had the capital to sort of invest in it, you know, that those those things were pretty symbiotic. So I think um I think I think it's 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 wrong. It certainly would be wrong. I think it's as much a symptom of a network we already had. Um, albeit it's now massively strengthened it. And and yeah, I think I mean A, I'd say the challenges of those networks are to get them, you know, there's a there's risk in networks as well. And you know, that you know, to man to for a network to create good investments, it has to be both something that gives you access to interesting companies, but also allows you to be objective with them, you know, often. Yeah. And, and, and I think the challenge and probably the advice I would give to people in any walk of life, but certainly in terms of this area would be that those networks effectively are built on trust, you know, trust and interest, you know, people will see you because they like you or because they find you interesting or think that you're going to have a dimension, you know, for instance, at the moment, I suspect most of the companies that see us in the venture stage like the fact we're listed, do listed investing because they think, you know, it brings us a different perspective from you sure. know, a complementary perspective to a lot of other venture investors. You know. um, and so I think that trust, I think the challenge with these networks is, I mean, effectively, you build them through trust and curiosity. Those are the two dynamics. Um, and, you know, the hardest thing to do, I think, is simultaneously have to, to be trusted to be able to say no to things, but in a is probably the hardest thing with those networks because 
you know, if, if you can never say no to anything that comes out of them, then it's you're not the best investor for it because, you know, the network will invest itself. You're not adding any value to that network. Um, and conversely, if you're not, so, and conversely, if you're not trusted, you know, in the end, it's just, it's just going to break down in some form. So having a very honest relationship with one's network and being clear about your curiosity and desire. I mean, I think the other thing is just being, trying to help. I mean, I think most of the people, you know, I mean, as Spencer said, when we first, you know, I think a lot of people would chat to either of us, hopefully, and say, do you mind having a look at this? Because I'd be interested in what you think. Um, and I think being willing to spend a bit of time with, you know, time is to many people the most precious commodity. And I think, I think being willing to spend a bit of time with other people without any obvious hope of, does this give me a network to access investor X? You know, people, you're never going to do the most interesting things if you immediately know, if you're only doing them because of some selfish benefit you attract down the road. Yeah. And help, help is a word we think about a lot and both internally and externally talk about a goal of being the most helpful seed fund. And we've got, we've got brilliant competitors who have deep understanding of different sectors to us, who have geographic reach that... A specific geographic reach that we that we don't have uh, and, and ventures a world where you have you know there's a lot of dynamics where you co-invest with a fund and then you compete with a fund on the same deal a, a month later but i think seed is it, it's so broad and there are so many people starting ambitious businesses and coming from different places that there's never a the further you go up the chain in venture um i imagine the funds just bumped into a friend at SoftBank around the corner, they imagine when 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 they look at an opportunity, it should really, they should have almost total overlap with their competitors of what their opportunity set is. The further you go down at seed, we surprisingly don't bump into the same seed funds the whole time. So it is just a much broader landscape. And then I think on the brand and how we try to build, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a moat because I don't think you can really have a moat in, in venture. I think you have to be paranoid and think there's going to be new great and now particularly you've got really brilliant tech founders forming uh, syndicates with other tech founders taking seed rounds you've got the big hedge fund guys doing seed not just who's ab but going all the way down um you've got the us funds moving over from the us to europe so i think you just have to stay healthily paranoid and keep trying to think are we are we are we offering something different um but i do think that the trust point that pete mentioned is when you ask i think most founders why they choose one early stage fund over another branding matters ability to make introductions matter ability for subsequent funding rounds matters and alignment of vision matters but actually the number one thing is the relationship with that partner at that fund because they, they work with them they're on their board they have a they, you know whatever have dinner with them or have a call with them every week or whatever it may be so i think that that trust element is still paramount i think it's self-selecting the other way around as well i mean to some degree probably the investment, most of the investments we make are people who kind of want to look at the world a pretty similar way to the way I would or to the way our team would. And and that's fine. We will in, inevitably therefore not work with a set of people, but, you know, that's fine as well. You know, there's, so, so I think in the end, I mean, it's going to be interesting when we come to talk perhaps about what some other more industrial approaches to venture are doing at the moment where they're almost doing the opposite of what we're talking about of taking the person out of it and, applying scale or breadth to it um you know it's a personal choice on my part i like to make investments with people who'd like me to be an investor and if there's someone who wants someone else to be an investor that's absolutely fine and you know 
I, I mentioned OSI. I should have explained that OSI is Oxford Sciences Innovation. Just changed its name to Oxford Sciences Enterprises. Oh, golly. So that, that, just about to change its name. I'm not, we may have to I, edit this bit out. But <laughs> so, <laughs> I better check. It's about to change its name. World anyway. exclusive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is, you know, what happens when you get a useless podcast host that doesn't do his, his research properly. <laughs> but um, you've both got an inter interest in university spin-outs. I mean, Spencer, your sister company, Founders Factory, has got an investment in the Creator Fund. And Pete, you've got an investment in Oxford Sciences Enterprise. Um, and you were instrumental in the setup and funding of that. I mean, just can you both talk about, is this an area where the UK has a significant opportunity given we've got an unrepresentatively large position in global academia? And is this a, a big hope for the future? There's quite a lot of um, American listeners to this podcast and I've been deliberately having British guests on. <laughs> They won't be listening to the British Venture Capital one, I can guarantee that. <laughs> they, um, um, yeah, I look, I think it's a huge opportunity for the country, for investors, for the universities themselves, you know, in many ways. I think if you say what's the biggest risk to UK universities, it, it's increasingly will, you know, younger academics, well, not necessarily younger academics, but will academics feel that they're going to have as much chance to be part of a commercial ecosystem? You know, if you said, what's, what's the, in inverted commas, the best university in the world, it's most, many people who, those of us who are not, not in the UK probably would say Stanford rather than perhaps a Harvard or a Yale at the moment. And the reason for that is the commercial ecosystem is exciting. It's somewhere that young people want to go. So I would also say that, you know, doing this, becoming making it clear how the translation between academia and commercial work happens will i think also be key to being a, a modern university that's world class as well as a huge economic opportunity as well um yeah i mean it is it's uh it's they're, they're remarkable institutions you know the talent that's there is is unique and they've been hideously underserved by capital providers despite the fact that you know, the perversity of all this is Britain's had a fantastic financial services sector, fantastic universities, and, you know, many of the people within the financial services sector are people who kind of went to those various universities, know lots of people there, and yet it just hasn't been joined up properly in the past, which is ridiculous at, at one level. Um, I mean, in many ways, the right question is why hasn't it happened rather than, you know, yeah. is it an opportunity that it should? Um, um, I don't think it's the only opportunity either, though. I mean, you know, if you... Um, if you said, where does Britain have world-class assets that are underinvested in? You could find many, many other examples, you know, sport, um, creative content. You know, there's tons of areas where Britain has a heritage but doesn't necessarily have the giant companies that it perhaps should have in those areas as, as of today. So I, I don't think it's limited in any way to... I mean, the one that I'm most obsessed by in the short term is conservation, where I'm convinced there's going to be huge... Uh, you know, where A, Britain should lead the world in conservation given its heritage, and B, I'm convinced it's the sort of industry that rightly is going to be at the fore... Well, it's a, it's a skill set that's going to be at, at the forefront of a huge amount of innovation over the next decade or so, given the, the very valid shift in priorities that the world's having and the rarity that it's not something that America and China naturally lead in. So, you know, I, don't, I think limiting it to universities is probably the biggest mistake at the moment, but the university thing... I mean, it should have been done years ago. I mean, absolutely. Do you have a sense out of interest, Pete, where they, where universities were going wrong in terms of 
go to market or commercialization or well i don't think i think i th- I, I definitely have a sense that the real value that the likes of osi oce and others other investors in the space that are getting access to it can have is in the development of companies not the seeding i mean i think you know and and to your point about how long the gestation period is to know whether one's doing a good job you know the real proof points of a sort of aggregated approach to this is going to be does it give you the firepower the perspective the network to take these companies from companies you could sell for a few hundred million dollars to giant FTSE companies because um, because actually you know, the university's done an okay job at creating the sort of you know there's a lot of companies founded in all these places and actually seed capital is not that unavailable it's that development mindset that's really missing um so i think i think um i think i genuinely think that the aggregator model has an opportunity to do that that was very hard for individual investors to do mm-hmm. um i think even quite hard for pure venture capitalists to do I mean, you know if you look back at some of the big successes in venture they still got sold rather than allowed to be listed and turned into it so i think it does need a lot of capital you know i think i think you need to have, it needs to bring bigger capital pools to it and and one of the key things we did with an oc was make sure that we had an investor base that was very broad you know i think one of the things that both made it possible and will ultimately make it successful is you need a lot of investors in those sort of things rather than just trying to monopolize it you know if we tried to do it as a sort of I couldn't have done it anyway but if just Lansdowne had tried to do it frankly a we wouldn't have had the scale to do this properly and b it just would have ended up ruining the net it would have ruined the, the whole thing and I think we recognized quite early on that doing it with other people made it a lot had it gave it a lot more chance of success and I think that's where the interesting thing is is can investors working together liberate some of these opportunities that on their own if they tried to monopolize them they'd end up either making them unavailable or stuff. And, and include, I'd include the government in this. I think, you know, my personal view is the government's very unlikely to catalyze on its own a ton of new businesses just because culturally and it's hard. I think the government working with a lot of other investors in specific areas can do all kinds of interesting things. Sure. Spencer, I mean, do you see more Jamie McFarlane's popping up at the woodwork and doing more... Things like the Creator Fund. I mean, we we've co-invested with Jamie and the Creator Fund. For us, and I love what he's doing. He's a, he's a great friend from from university. I, for us, we don't necessarily differentiate or care too much of the origins of a founding team, whether it's two PhDs or someone who's, you know, the the um, anecdotal dropped out of high school, etc. For us, it doesn't matter too much. However the strength of the UK university ecosystem is just part of, is a core part of what I think makes the UK tech environment so vibrant and exciting. And I think the, what, at least in my short period in venture, what's felt like the biggest, a big change is the combination of that talent that was always there, combined with more success stories of the large growing tech companies, which has meant two things. One, it's shown a path to success and, and and therefore given, you know, whether it's the, the demises of DeepMind or, or the big fintechs or whoever, it's given a sense of what can be achieved. And so therefore I think the commercial and business building aspiration of some of the most brilliant technical minds coming out of Oxford or anywhere else 
is is I think there's been a there's been a a step function change there, and then linked to that, the combination of more operators teaming up with more what one might call technical talent or uh, quote unquote academia. So I think I think you know when you have the you know the likes of. Uh, you know, of, of Kleiner and Adjun and Spotify and downwards and Arm, of course, too. And we've backed a, one brilliant team out of Arm. And I think you combine people who have seen these, help scale these really big tech companies, teaming up in co-founding teams or management teams of early stage companies. Uh, I think that's just a really exciting development. And, and I mean, you're, you feel that there's not enough development capital. I mean, is, is, do you think that's a shortcoming of the sort of tech ecosystem here? I mean, is that... Um, I mean, I think, I mean, I don't think there's enough, there's not deep enough listed market as well. I would also, um, say, I, I think, you know, the biggest change since I was started in the industry was that, I mean, when we started the, uh, you know, the big, the big long dated asset holders, be they pension funds or insurance companies had huge domestic equity weightings. And are willing. I mean, they didn't do that much private stuff, but they had the opportunity to do it. And you know, throughout the last twenty-five years, exaggerated by every crisis, and arguably, I would say, also hindered by regulation, that advantage one once had has disappeared. Basically, so there isn't that pool of deep capital. Um, and uh, Spencer says, you know, once you get some successes, success does breed success. You know, sure. um, the Arm um, 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 has a legacy way beyond, you know, and all credit to them, you know, has a legacy way beyond its 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 own value creation in terms of spawning a lot of the best innovation and 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 as you say the it's part capital and part example I think, um, but yeah I mean I I do think the UK I do think the regulation stopping UK pension funds and insurance companies having as much equity risk as they used to have has been a massive blow to sort of taking, you know, you've ended up with a fixed income economy where housing is dominant. You know, it's not a surprise, you know, if, yeah. if housing is the massive wealth preservation, then, you know, not and fixed income, you know, you've got, it's not quite as bad as Europe, which is, you know, purely fixed income as far as I can see and has no equity exposure, but it's nowhere close to America in terms of, the you know the willingness of people to invest in equity above other asset classes. Oh sure, right. and Spencer, you you intrigued me slightly because you sort of said, well, we don't really care where you come from if you're sort of two dropouts from high school or or you've come from your two PhDs from university. I mean, one of the the most important difficult things that you do is judging a founder or, or a manager. Are there any secrets in judging whether a founder is going to be able to? successfully and and probably relentlessly pursue his ambition what what, what were your would be your tips i think if i'd found the secret and then shared it with you i'd do myself <laughs> out of a job so um i i don't think there is a secret as a very quick addendum i think just feeding on what pete was saying I, there and it's linked to your question steve which is i think there's also more alignment in terms of excitement of what types what sectors are the future in the next 10, 15 years and top UK is, I think the context which we're speaking, university talent. So fine, crypto NFTs is huge at the moment, creator economy, et cetera. There are several others, but biotech and whether it's AI for drug discovery, whether it's many other subsets of that is just a huge area of focus and lots of generalist funds 
are starting to work out how they can underwrite those types of investment. So I do, I feel optimistic in terms of that kind of venture coming closer to really brilliant university science and, and minds. But I think in terms of assessing founders, okay, it's highly subjective. I think you are trying to assess their authenticity. You're trying to assess their resilience as founders. Are they again going to be able to attract star talent to come and work with them on that mission? I think the the, the truism of a venture of seed venture always being about backing the founders. You know, I think the more you do it, the more you probably ascribe to that. There are, I, I think, there are different types of ways of of doing seed investing, and I have a, a, a you know a, a brilliant partner. Uh, called Eric Wilogowski, who was at Index before. And for him, his way of approaching it, he, he uses a phrase called prepared mind, where he wants to, he want, he has a view or a thesis on a space or the evolution of a sector or a technology or a product. And, and, and we'll meet a founder and there'll be sort of this a, a kind of meeting of minds and where they share a, a sense of how the future is unfolding. And, and I, I admire him hugely for that. I don't think I have the a necessary depth of understanding of any one sector to be able to do that. For me, I think it's, do I have an innate sense that this person will be relentless? And and I often have this image of, I don't know if you remember those, those toy cars that children sometimes has where they hit the wall and then they go up the wall and turn in a different direction when they, you know, it's this, this overcoming obstacles and, and, you know, the founders that I work most closely with them, They've all had near-death experiences, or nearly all of them, and I think it's such a it's such a gravity-defying thing to build a startup because you have incumbents, or if you don't have incumbents, it's because it's a new technology that you're introducing to the world, and there's education, you know. So I think it's I just I totally sincerely have complete admiration for all of our all the founders that we have partnered with. So I think for me, it's a sense of of is there some reason that I can understand that they are doing this business. What's the, could be the chip on the shoulder. It could be some, often it's they've experienced the problems themselves. Um, and, and that helps me understand why, or helps me believe that they're just not going to give up. Of course, you need to understand the market, the product, et cetera. But, but I, I think there can be a risk of overanalyzing at seed. But, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a highly uh, subjective thing. But I, I think pattern recognition for your style of investing starts to evolve. I mean, Pete, the, the same question, but in a different way. I mean, to get to the top of a Fortune 500 company, you've got to be a bit of a salesman, or you've got to be political, you've got to be good at persuading people that you're right. I mean, what tricks do you use to understand whether you should trust a manager of a large company, a quoted company with your capital? It's interesting. I've, I've gone a bit back and forth in terms of I, I, it's something I definitely don't think I'm very good at personally. I mean, and so going back to the venture side, one of the core reasons that I'm directly taking investment decisions, it, it, I, I, I don't particularly want to take seed investment decisions because I think so much of it is that. And I've got the tremendous luxury that there's lots of people I know who are really good at that, who are taking those decisions. And so when we structured our involvement in that, it was fairly explicitly to say, look, these are going to be companies that have been around for three or four years before we have to take a decision on it. I, I find it find it very, very hard. Um, and, you know, um, and, and I think perhaps I would, um, partly because in, in, in our, the equivalent in the hedge fund industry was always 
you know, this slightly perverse thing that I came across, which was, I remember when we moved to Lansdowne rather than Mercury, the several client, potential clients we saw who turned us down did so because they said, why didn't you just take the really entrepreneurial route and set up your own business? Um, you're not a real entrepreneur in some form or you're not a real risk taker. And I was slightly sitting there going, you want me to be a, a sense of, you know, you're saying to me, you've got a balanced judgment on risk. I can articulate very easily why it was the right thing to do logically. But the simple argument that there's there's a slight analogy in that in the hedge fund world, there used to be the thing of, I want somebody who's going to take as much possible risk in every form of life, which wasn't really what they probably wanted. Mm-hmm. I slightly also suspect in the found, in the founder world, this sort of iconic notion of somebody who the best the best person I've worked with is the calmest, least, you know, the most easy, straightforward investment I've had with a guy is someone who's very calm. I, I doubt is gets cross or particularly emotional about anything and just, you know, rationally chats about things. And, you know, if there's a problem, he stops it becoming a big problem and therefore actually probably hasn't had a near-death experience to the thing. So I'm, I'm a, I don't think I'm very good at spotting those people and B, that sort of volatile ride notion of founders is probably right some of the time, but I suspect it's probably overhyped a tiny bit in, in these things. Um, seen, and then conversely, one, one always sort of vacillates a tiny bit between with man. Oddly enough, as I've got done it for longer, originally I was pretty close to the sort of Warren Buffett view of actually the management team isn't that important in terms of, um, you know, if you do your analysis on the industry properly and the company's position within the industry. Um, I think um, as as I've got on a bit, the I, I think probably the way I try and do it is say, okay, what does this company need to be successful, and is that management team one who's going to be able to do it? And to give you an, a real example, I won't give you the name of the company, but there's one listed company that we've just started investing in, where you know they're doing everything right and they've got this wonderful IP and a future that's you know potentially very rosy, but actually their inability to present it is 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 probably the biggest risk for the investor for an investor i mean there's the sort of easy risk which is it might get taken over before it's had a chance to mature but the real risk is like unless the person there is a bit more promotional and a bit better at sort of inspiring people can you really believe that these sort of upside can i really square that with an investment case which is this technology will be super valuable you know in there so so i think what i try to do now is is sort of say okay what am i asking the ceo to do and are they capable of doing it um recognizing that's enlisted companies usually very different often you know sometimes it's can you create a political message to you know if i was looking at sort of a big tech someone like facebook or something like that today you know you'd say the major job of them is to retain their permission to operate which you know without giving any comment on them at all the same skill that developed the company may not be the same skill to give it to maximize investment value from here, but it's really fascinating dynamic. But yeah, I, I that skill of being a founder is something that I, I definitely wouldn't claim that we would be better than other people at picking. I think it's funny that you said that about coming to Lansdowne and people criticizing you because you, you've got a very particular profile as a hedge fund, which <laughs> would be diametrically opposed to going out and setting up <clears throat> on your own. I mean, doing it, yeah, doing it exactly. the way you did it yeah, is exactly 100%. consistent with your with your position in uh, in in amongst other other funds. And, and particularly if you move from a large firm to a small firm, the bit that you know we we were able to take for granted because of the strength of the business we joined, 
but other people have to create them for themselves, namely, you know, that infrastructure rigor and all the other things, you know, it's amazing to me how, how many investors wanted us to suddenly have a skill in something we had had literally zero experience in and would only take time from the thing we really wanted to do and they wanted to get us to do. But it was, lots of people said it. It was, um, it was um, and I sort of, under, I could probably, I'm probably doing them a tiny bit of a disservice as to the logic for it, but a lot of it was this, um, you know, we want you to take, you're a risk taker, take lots of risk, which is not the way I see the world. No, absolutely. I mean, I think it can be very successful. You get a hedge fund manager who pairs up with a business person. 100%. And that, well, we've seen some of your former colleagues. I, yeah. mean, I mean, Ross would be a good example of that. Yeah. I mean, I think the venture, I'm trying to think what the venture equivalent is in terms of, um, you know, that sort of founder... That there is something I'm sure that's equivalent, but it's not quite straightforward. I don't. I, I, I think in, in I terms think, of the risk appetite of an entrepreneur, or in terms of yeah. I mean, so when I look when I talk to entrepreneurs, I quite like what I find, and I'm not sure if I'm right about this. Is I find the ones who can give me a pretty clear idea of what they're trying to do mm-hmm. and why very very persuasive. I'd overweight their ability to do that versus the sort of are they hungry? That are they hungry aspect of it is one that. Is, is not what I'd normally think. But uh, but that may be, I'm not sure, I, again, a bit like Spencer was saying about time series. We'll see with the benefit of hindsight whether that turns out to be right. I mean, of course, most of the things we see in Oxford, for instance, are not startup, you know, there's a separate set of stuff to appraise. You already have a set of IP. Your big question, weirdly, the big question there is less, is this world-class IP? It's, can I see a business case, you know, which is the opposite of, you know, what you're describing in, which is, there's this guy who tells a great story, has there any substance to it? Here it's kind of the other way around. Can you put a story around a substance or not? It's, yeah. it's amazing at seed stage how often it things don't make sense in the way that a founder is explaining something. And that's either because they do know but aren't articulating it and you have to work to get there or or because it, it, it doesn't make sense. And I think, you know, the I mentioned the, the pattern recognition. I, you know, you I think I think picking up signals is 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 critical for for those entrepreneurs early on and, and that signal could be anything it could be a history of excellence whatever that may mean to you a previous business uh, uh references that you do uh having had uh, excelled in 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 academia whatever it may be or it might be that first customer that is only a pilot but is completely a sort of product evangelist and loves the product or it's it could be an amazing advisor it could be a world-class angel it could be a first hire who is superb so you're trying to pick up signals that ping where you're like, there's no data or often there is sometimes data, but seed is, you know, it's, you know, you're, you're often seeing valuations at $30 million when someone hasn't built anything yet. Um, so there's often no data. So you're then trying to pick up the signals and then trying to match that with, does this feel like a space that is evolving in the right direction? And, you know, we, we have to think a lot about will the big series A funds or multi-stage funds, you know, what, what, what will you as an entrepreneur need to prove in the 18 months, so when we invest at Seed, we try to give them at least 18 months of runway. And so what can you prove in those 18 months to get more funding and validate your business further? So it's often thinking like, is it one of those, you know, really highly competitive kind of hairy spaces where you think oh, this is gonna be really, really tough to move anything? Or is it one where you're not sure if the company's gonna win? So we, for instance, right on the cusp of what we're comfortable with, we've backed a, a company in San Francisco doing lab engineered leather. Now, I'm fairly certain that if they can produce this at scale and overcome the engineering challenges, all the, the 
big, large fashion houses, well, we know that they're ready for it and, and there, there are lots of competitors, etc. I think that is an example of a company that the product is the future, whether it's their product or not, who knows? They might win, they might not. Um, so I, th I think that combination of signals and space is another, going back to your question of how do you, how do you pick? It's quite interesting because what you're saying is that there's a, a short-term and long-term aspect to your business in the same way as with quoted investing. There's a, a you can have a very good long-term vision, but you've also got to be right in, yeah, in I think, the short I think term. Certainly, the, the discipline we try to apply is is making sure that while while that staging post will be a function of a long-term view, one never tries to expect that whatever equity you're putting in for this stage is going to capture the value that somebody else has to pay for, for in the future. So I would always, we always say, okay, what is it that will have happened once the money we've given them to spend runs out? And is it obvious that that's, you know, going to convince? I, th I was thinking about this founder thing. I think, I think actually, effectively, what one tries to do in almost every investment is ask two questions. One, should somebody do this? And two, what's the probability it's you, of you being that person to do it or them being the person to do it? And I think the founder's... I mean, I think, A, the reason I don't do seed very often, and B, I think this function of founder personality types is kind of a subset of this second question of why should the per this particular thing be the person to solve that problem? And, and uh, yeah, and, and, and I think for, for me that's the hardest bit of these early stage ones is knowing what else other people are doing. You know, that's where either domain expertise or some shortcut comes in because actually with many of the something like lab-based leather for instance as you rightly say it's pretty it's a given i would think that somebody will do that over the next 10 years um and so handicapping the quality of the investment is all going to be around the problem while the story will all be around how exciting lab-based leather is that actually whether it's a good investment is handicapping the probability of this particular attempt being the, the right one for in turn requiring one to have some knowledge of what else other people are up to which is why it's so time consumptive as well because how do you know who else is doing the lab-based leather? You, you do your competitive landscaping before you make the investment. You ask around. You, the founders should know. And if they don't, that's also a yellow flag. Because if, you know, we always look very closely at the competitive slides that every seed stage company has in their pitch deck. And, and if they're missing a key one, you know, that's not a good sign. Either they don't know, which is really bad, or they do and they're not saying, which isn't great. So you, you definitely ask around. Um, and I think... I think there's also, just as Pete was saying, there's a founder startup fit that's critical. I also think there's a founder investor fit where there are certain types of founders who I might be, or spaces, that I might be more likely to, to pick well and partner with well compared to, to my colleagues who would, you know, I'm, I'm very unlikely to pick the next success in DevOps. You know, it's just a space that I find really hard to understand. Um, whereas, you know, some of my colleagues are brilliant at that. So I think, I think there's a, I think it's being comfortable as well with, you know, if you have your head torch and you're looking down on the ground, you're not going to be able to have full visibility on, on, on everything as an early stage investor or a series B investor. So um, are there, I mean, are there sectors that you really like? It's quite tricky. I'm going to ask, you Pete, same question, but it's easier for a quoted investor because you've made money in some sector. You know, I would contrast therapeutics in biotech with um, with sort of either data or platform or you know, you know, less binary things. I, I really, I'm, I'm thrilled that OSI, OSI is doing lots of therapeutics, but I definitely don't want to think that I can add any value in therapeutics on top of the broad thing because I just, you know, I think it's very, very hard and. Um, and so um, I say never, but I, I'm, 
my, my hurdle for doing something in therapeutics is way higher, in drugs is way higher than it would be in other forms of biotech. In the quoted markets, I mean, there, are there sectors that you really like because you've, you've done well in the past or are there sectors that you won't touch because... We, I mean, I would say sometimes we're guilty, frequently probably. Uh, there are some sectors where I think our edge is greater than others. You know, frustratingly for me, banks is probably the sector where our, our, our sort of in, our analytic edge is probably, you know, honed a bit better than some other ones, but equally has been a sector where knowing nothing about banks has probably made better investment decisions than knowing lots about banks. But so there's definitely a correlate, you know, the challenge going back to the point about the difference between seed and quoted is I think one's natural desire, one's natural focal points based around expertise and enjoyment often, in, especially in quoted, I think, can lead to quite big errors, whereas I suspect in C, it's the more you know, the more likely you are to be right most of the time, I would think, whereas, you know, dealing in listed markets, sometimes it can cause you to miss the bigger picture, which somebody who can't be bothered to look at something drives, when somebody who can't be bothered to look at something properly is driving the price rather than, you know, then that's very dangerous in quoted markets. So um, sometimes, yeah. Stuart, your former partner, called it the sector curse. That you're too expert and yeah i i think and i think um yeah i i i think I, I think and once something i'm trying to get better at is i would hope being expert in a sector is always an advantage but you really a bit like i was describing with the networks earlier you have to be able to use that skill to not make an investment or not take a decision as well as you know you know or, or to, to calibrate the decision at least i mean i think probably the best outcome for us in some of those investments would have been to do a lot less of them rather than to actually not do them at all because, you know, that expertise. But, you know, I think it's one, judging one's conviction level and judging, you know, being alert to what somebody else might think about it should still be easier to do when you've got expertise than when you haven't, I think. No, of course. I mean, Spencer, you, you were referring to, you know, there's a, you see a lot of ideas. I mean, how, how many do you pick and how do you, sift and you've got presumably you've got people stopping you in the street <laughs> i think we probably with a business plan <laughs> yes <laughs> we sift imperfectly probably but we try to i mean it is a lot and you get a lot of cold inbound which tends to be statistically the lowest caliber but equally there will for sure be ones that called inbounds where there's some gem hidden in the rough. So you have to pay attention to it and, and make a quick assessment. We have a, for a relatively small firm, we have a relatively large team of, of 19, 20 people. So I think we try to play the volume game and, and, and pass through as many opportunities as we can. I think you, you, I think, you know, we haven't, we Pete touched on it right at the beginning, but we haven't, spoken so much about luck in early stage and I think all the elements that might have influenced some of maybe your public uh, tech investing in the 2000s and 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 where you got lucky or unlucky as well as the deep analysis and sector expertise you had you have all of those forces in early stage venture markets evolving etc but then you also have this this huge swings factor of 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 the the human element and the evolution of the team and founders breaking up and the unexpected factors that are so important to the to the, the fragile organism of an early stage company so i think for sure there are 
I think you want to agree totally with Pete, like sector expertise has got to be a great thing. And some of the most successful venture funds, whether it's at a USV in New York or QED in, in FinTech, you know, have got the, the, you know, the deep, deep sector expertise. And I think that should always be lauded. But I think there, I think seed still feels to me like talent spotting and and we've discussed kind of how we both see that um but i think you can i i don't see myself as a sector expert and i used to be very uncomfortable with that because i thought i felt like a total fraud for not having a you know being able to talk to you intelligibly about you know the future of x but i think i'm increasingly confident about two things of one as as you know uh, running first minute obviously um with with, with brent i feel that my job is to think about it as a firm and and building a business and therefore is this a coherent strategy that if i picture pitching first minute 3 to Pete in 12 months and 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 you know have we can can i explain you know we have we we we've invested in ai for drug discovery company focused on therapeutics now i would not want to be the underwriter of that investment it was a small ticket for us but i wouldn't would would never have got to that stage but we have a the partner i mentioned and b a venture partner who's head of ai for gsk now he's probably one of the five people in the uk who's best to evaluate that and he was at deepmind before so we have the capabilities within the team to make a call on that so i think thinking about it as a, as a firm and can we justify each investment i think for me looking top down is critical um and then and then second of all being you know i'm on the board of a mortgage lender i think the founder is a complete superstar and i I think it's going to be a giant. I think it's going to change the mortgage industry in the UK. Um, uh, and it's very early days. They're doing they're doing sort of you know 50, 60 mortgages a month, but it's pretty extraordinary for a company only three years old. Um, and I, I didn't. I fully confess my knowledge of mortgages was limited, but I just had just overwhelming belief that this was a founder of exceptional intellectual horsepower, drive, vision, ability to hire, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a long-winded way of saying I'm, I am comfortable being generalist. I'm rather envious of, of the Pete's and the, and the colleagues of this world who generally have, genuinely have a, a really deep expertise. But I think for Seed, if you're going to take a generalist mandate, which we do, um, you, know, you have to be comfortable with that as well. I mean, I should stress we are utterly generalist as well. <laughs> I mean, I, occasionally, we know a tiny bit about a few things, but um, yeah, I... I think, I think, I mean, for me, of course, the luxury is that this is one of the reasons why I prefer to get to know other seeders because it's so, I mean, for me, the lovely thing about the way I tend to think about things is normally by the time I've invested, there's a sort of 18 month runway minimum for me, you know, where the first meeting will be probably a casual one and one's gradually forming an investment view through that process. So ally that to sort of the way I deliberately want to be a partner of a lot of seeders you know including you know that that's my way of getting around what i think is a really difficult problem i mean you know no, I think sure. it's, it's a... now we bumped into mark rubenstein your former colleague in the street and i was having a conversation a real expert with... on banks rather than just, <laughs> a, just sort of a... and um i i was asking about adgen the payments dutch payments firm which is valued at to my astonishment, almost a hundred billion dollars. It's on eighty times sales. I mean, I, I've got to do a case study on it you know, for a client next week, and uh, you know, I, I mean, I know very little about it. I do know that eighty times sales is a big number, and um, but uh, you know, it's more likely to go to eight times sales than eight hundred. I, I know that much. But um, yeah, I think what, the key question is whether the sales grow. Yeah, that's no. done by the sales growing or the price going down, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, we, we, I mean, obviously, it's got a very big 
um, runway, a very big opportunity ahead. But uh, how concerned are you about bubbles or excessive euphoria in some areas of quoted markets? I wasn't thinking so much of Adgen, but, you know, electric vehicles, specs. Um, do you think, are we in a bubble? Obviously, we've got interest rates on the floor, but what happens if they go up? Can they go up? And I'm going to ask Spencer in a minute, does this matter if you're a VC, but you just, you're just happy to collect, <laughs> collect the checks? Yeah, I mean, I, I still say we've got a deficit of funding in the UK for early stage companies, you know, so I think the, the you know, I, I kind of look at it in some sort of, is the right amount of money going into these companies? Still not yet would be my general view. Um, so, and, and actually, hopefully, I think, and I think you're beginning to see this is that the, the sort of gap between, you know, capital available and a number of opportunities is meaning that where there are anomalies like the UK, those gaps are being filled more quickly than they probably would have been five, six years ago. So that's probably a good thing. So, um, I mean, we're choosing, I, t I mean, I guess what I would say is that the two things we're not doing at the moment are pre-IPO funding, where a lot of hedge funds are going backwards into that. Mm. Um, and our listed investments, I mean, to me, we we don't own many of the fact, I mean, it's interesting when I go back to valuation. So, um, and this was a mistake we made. So for something like Netflix, for instance, I remember comparing when we first bought it at about 10 billion, we bought it because we felt it had reached a critical mass where if anyone was going to win, it was going to be them, which was kind of like Sky and ESPN, you know. And we kind of said, I can't remember the exact number, but let's say Disney had a market cap of 200 at the stage, uh, or 150 or something at the stage. And the, 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 until the two things, until Netflix had a decent combination of the market cap of Disney, that was a logical valuation parameter to say that the new winner would be valued at the same as the old winner and so I felt comfortable rationalizing that outside of which is potentially the Adian argument I guess um, I think where I found it hard is that quite frequently including Netflix companies have gone beyond the previous winner in market cap terms perfectly rationally because what they've actually done is expand a market or make it more profitable and I think probably I've been guilty of in some of these I don't know Adian well enough to comment but and probably wouldn't if I did um, but um I think that, you know, I, I think it's very rational to take the previous winner, say you've got a new winner and give some probabilistic view of, of that. I, I think where I would be more, and so the two things, the, the, the thing we're not doing aside from the pre-IPO stuff is I kind of think the big consumer internet networks of that were the dominant growth theme of the last decade, which we invested in seven, nine, ten years ago and sold probably a year or two too early. I can't see that they're the dominant growth theme of the next decade. So you know, to me, even though they're not particularly expensive, I just don't think they're particularly interesting investments from here. You know, they're just, you know, to me, what I'd like to invest in enlisted growth is stuff that's at an early stage of maturity. Yeah. You know, to me, I kind of think some of the ESG stuff like, and weirdly, we would count some of our paper companies as being, you know, 10 year growth stories from here, because, you know, to my mind, we're at the point, same point with switching plastics to paper as we were with Amazon and Google 10 years ago. Um, and so I, I, I find... I mean, I don't know whether this is going to turn out to be right because they're definitely not as expensive as they were 20 years ago and they're very good companies and and will find new ways of innovating. But to me, the two things I would avoid is mature internet networks because it's just not very interesting compared to the last 10 years and 
I think the pre-IPO stuff, you know, if there's if there's capital going from somewhere where people are super competent to somewhere where they're less competent, you know, going to, you know, as yet the seeders are not going into the quoted markets, you know, launching massive hedge funds and, you know, we're not going all the way back to seeding. But I think that, um, I think that area would be the one that uh, there's a lot of capital chasing things, I would say. I'm feeling a first-minute Lansdowne co-branded vehicle could come from this year. Um, I I won't comment on Adjun's valuation other than to say that um, the co-founder John is one of our LPs, so very <laughs> pleased for him. Um, and and I won't comment on whether we're in a bubble or not because you'll hear much more thoughtful analysis from other people. But I think my perspective is: does it matter or not? I mean, we had it. We had a a flash feeling of it last year when when COVID struck and we had to put our fundraise for first minute two on hold just because the world was on hold and and our portfolio founders were any funding conversations they were having was obviously put on hold and apart from it being a, a you know pretty grim time societally and and everyone then expecting um a, a full-on recession um i think i think it probably for early stage does not matter and is arguably there are arguably even from a purely kind of capitalist thinking about a venture fund point of view benefits to it, namely valuations, you know, might well be crazy for Agen and Co, but but they're they're also crazy at seed stage, where people who are, are you know raising 10, 15 million dollar seed rounds at 30, 40, 50, 60 million dollar valuations for, for for where there isn't anything built. There's no there's no product. PowerPoint. For sure. And that is because of their pedigree and their background and the space and the other things we've been talking about. So in a in a in a downturn, those those things change and suddenly for 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 the same amount of dollar you have larger ownerships of companies and and arguably some of the noise subsides um and i think that the money sitting above us in multi-stage firms and 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 hedge funds moving into privates is is still enormous even if rates change even if everyone piles back into fixed income or what have you i, th- I think for a, from our perspective we care about our, our founders finding product market fit and then if they need it ideally they don't, but if they need it, then raising subsequent rounds and scaling the business. So I think, I think does a, you know, a bubble bursting and there being a recession would be, would be from a, you know, the, the global economy point, pretty, pretty grim um, from a, from an early stage fund point of view, less so. But I think one big difference, if you go back to 2000, 2001, and something we haven't seen yet is obviously what happened then is a ton of capital was invested by the companies in the ground, as it were, building multiple telecom networks. And there was just way too much capacity. That was fun. What was interesting then was that the predictability of that was not really, we, we misremember it a bit when we say it was valuation. It was actually, I mean, certainly from my perspective, you know, A, had I thought about it from a valuation perspective, I would have preempted the, I would have said there was a bubble probably two years before there. Well, the end was, of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can argue about it. I mean, Amazon was a thousandth of its value now, so you know, hard to know. Um, but the time where it was really obvious was when you suddenly had way too many telecom networks being built, and companies who were supplying that capacity expansion on very high multiples of an unsustainable level of of, of demand. Obviously, one of the weird things so far in this cycle is actually been very uncapital intensive you know yeah actually if anything it's been taking away for you know it's been making the high street less valuable rather than building 20 high streets my suspicion is that when the esg theme emerges that will be much more like the telecom theme of yesteryear of being of because it's effectively saying we need to build a load of new assets to replace the ones we had before um i would say that unless you can see over capacity you shouldn't worry too much about 
there's only very, very small aspects of what we're, what we're looking at where I can see overcapacity being the problem. I can think of you know a few areas where there's probably 10 people trying to do exactly the same thing, all of whom have got a ton of capital. But that's the exception still rather than the rule. And both from a sort of predictability of the bubble unwinding and also the impact of the bubble unwinding, I think one needs to remember it was... And also the really interesting aspect, which is, of course, because so many telecom networks were built, you effectively had broadband being free, yeah. which in turn was what created Netflix and YouTube. You know, Netflix and YouTube, had they had to pay a marginal cost for capacity on a telecom network would never would never have come into being. And one of the things we're thinking about a lot is if ultimately, my suspicion, it seems a weird thing to say today, is that ultimately energy will end up being free because people will build so many renewables that there will just be massive excess capacity. If that turns out to be the case, the number of new business models created based on free energy is going to be fascinating. So, you know, I think there's a lot... I think that capacity thing is a big difference to where we are today. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think the valuation, there, there is a lot of very, very high valuations of very, very suspect businesses at one extreme. And then at the other end, my old hunting ground was completely out of favour. So, you know, high quality business like AB Ports, I remember yeah. at 125 pence, got taken out for seven or eight times that yeah. five years later. So today, we don't have the 125, oh, well, if anybody can find the 125 pence AB ports, uh, I, they're not lying around, obviously, as they were in 2000. Although, and then at the other extreme, the really high quality, you've got some really high quality businesses, and they aren't on outrageous valuations. But there's this weird, there's weird pockets like the specs and the electric vehicles, which are ludicrously valued. And then you've got the very, very challenging valuations for an adyen, where you've got to really think through oh how God. much growth it I don't know. Not, I'm, I'm making this up. So, But my guess is if you took all the people who could have been Amazon and took their market caps in 99, you know, it'd be an interesting question of whether one, if you'd, even if you'd evenly weighted it, let alone picking Amazon, whether actually you wouldn't have done okay between then and now, as long as you had Amazon within it, which goes to the point about, you know, and I, I think the same is true of electric vehicles as today. Maybe, maybe not quite so true today, but, you know, the ultimate market cap of the electric vehicle market will be enormous, I'm sure. Um, oh, absolutely. Whether the it's problem, in the right places or yeah. not, you know. But the problem with that is that there's a lot of incumbents. So the automotive, and automotive manufacturers are better equipped to respond by producing electric vehicles than Marks and Spencer's <laughs> Yeah. I, I, I mean, they had plenty of time, but they didn't. They didn't. The only company that come very few of the retailers. Don't remember IBM's, I don't remember IBM's mobile phone being that successful. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's been fantastic. Thank you both very much. Just a closing question: If I can ask you both, do you have a favourite book or and what book practice or training would you recommend to anyone looking to come into your business, apart from mine? I mean, book, just because you should enjoy venture if you do it or want to get into it. I would say Bad Blood about Theranos is just a... Oh, I love that ...gripping book. book. <laughs> and also is a nice uh, yeah, warning tale. Um, so Bad Blood would probably be my book. And then in terms of resources, I, I learn better from talking and listening than, than, than reading. Um, so for me, it's I think there are a ton of good podcasts out there, um, you know, 
Big it's defense. Fun. It's fun I don't know quite, quite right. <laughs> Behind the balance sheet being number one. But, uh, you know, Reed Hoffman's Master of Scale is a great one that lots of people love. Um, there, there are so many, but I think, uh, yeah, I would say, I would say hearing people uh, think about, uh, them talk about how they think about venture is probably my one. Well, I was struggling with the, um, I mean, I, I tend to like reading about periods rather than necessarily theories on them. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I'm trying to think if I can... I was trying to think of a, a sort of theoretical one. Um, I mean, I, 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 I always think one should try and read about the periods you haven't explored and, and actually try and... Um, uh, try and, and So actually, if I was doing it now, I'd probably want to sort of read about some more inflationary periods, you know. So, I mean, interestingly, Peter Lynch's book... I can't remember what it's called, the Peter Lynch book, but... One Up on Wall Street. One Up on Wall Street, yeah. Um, I mean, if I was a young person today, if only, uh, I would say, actually, you probably know a fair bit about technology and stuff. Read back to a period where, you know, A, cycles were different from how they are now. And also, of course, what he was brilliant at was, and it was a different thing, it was a physical expansion then, but it's not that different, was saying, look, if you want to pay, if you know something works and it's only currently operating in 1% of its available market paying 50 times earning for it is hugely logical and so i i kind of think historical book i i i personally find histories easier to read than theories and and that period i think is one that's what's so fascinating at the moment is there's a very small sample set of people who can remember anything below before 90 before 1990 and yet we may well be in an environment that's more similar to that than the last 30 years um well it's fascinating i had the opportunity um Real Vision asked me if I would interview Mario Gabelli. Mm. And it was the night that England was playing Denmark on uh, in the World Cup. Mm. And of course, um, Raoul Paul obviously had agreed to do this interview and then realized that the football match was on and he'd rather do that. So I, being Scottish, was less interested <laughs> in, in the football result. Although I did have, I did the interview in the living room with the TV on in the background so I could watch the, watch, watch the, watch the football. But he is the only person that I've spoken to that actually was investing in the 70s in a period of inflation. I don't know anybody who is that, has had that long, longevity. And I mean, there are people like, I was talking to um, Sir John Riplett, and obviously he was you know, doing property at that time. Of course, property was incredibly difficult at that period. But I said to Mario Gabelli, I said, so what was it like investing in, in a period of inflation? He said, oh, it was just much like today. He said, the problem with inflation is it's a bit like toothpaste. Once it gets out the, once it gets out the tube, it's very difficult to get it back in. And um, I don't know whether we're, we will end up in a period of inflation, but certainly that seems to be... I think, I, th I think to that point, I think when one reads his... I mean, a bit like we were describing with competence earlier and networks, you know... If one, the other advice I would give to people reading those books historically is say, be alert to those of being the outliers of time, not the norm. I mean, I think there's, I mean, one thing I observed, I remember, I mean, inflation especially is a very, very dangerous word in my experience. So, you know, 12 years ago, I remember post 09, people saying QE equals inflation. And they were 100% right, but they just forgot that actually the inflation was going to be in asset prices, not in. And therefore, you know, that's all the theory they used was right, but the application was something they forgot to consider, well, either just didn't consider. And, you know, inflation is always is, is almost invariably a relative 
dynamic rather than mm. an absolute one. And certainly what we're seeing at the moment is actually what's so interesting is that you've got this very skewed cost of capital between some areas, you know, there are kind of two, to my mind anyway, two major divergences, both of which are to do with cost of capital, namely government has very cheap borrowing, having had very expensive borrowing, and therefore it's about to spend a load of money having saved it for, and, and then within the real economy, you know, traditional businesses have quite a high cost of capital and therefore haven't brought on capacity, whereas there's lots of capacity expansion in some of the lower cost of capital areas. I, I still think, I, I'm trying hard not to use the term inflation because to me it's, it's about the incentives that get created by different costs of capital, fully recognising that whereas the last decade was about inflation happening but not being called inflation because it was asset inflation and the same inflation this decade may well look a lot more like inflation than prior decades and be thought of as such. So, But definitely this point about when you read these exceptional... I mean, we're talking about Stuart, one thing Stuart always, and I always used to chat a lot about was how often muddle through actually happen. You know, if you took 10 years, there are probably one exceptional year either way. But in eight years out of 10, that sort of book you read about Crisis X is, is, is as dangerous as, you know, anything else. Yeah, I think that that's so true. My old friend, Andrew Smith, who is a retired economist, he always says, well, you know, most things usually work out okay because we muddle through and that's a, that's a great way to end it. Thank you both so much for doing this. I really enjoyed it. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Us. We saved the best till last. I'm never surprised that Pete has a different perspective, but I'm often amazed by his insight. His analysis of the late 1990s tech boom and the parallels and possible fallout from ESG today have really made me think. And Spencer's views on what's happening in UK tech must be as well informed as anyone, given his investor base and the fact that we recorded the podcast the day after First Minute's annual investor day. I really hope you enjoyed the episode and that you learned something as well. I certainly did. Don't forget, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite hosting service and please leave us a rating on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter, at Steve Clapham, and we're on all social media channels. Check out the YouTube channel, Behind the Balance Sheet, for some great videos with investing tips, accounting red flags, and much more. And don't forget, most importantly, we've got a newsletter. Hit the sign up button on behindthebalancesheet.com. You'll get access to our library with lots of free training materials. The newsletter's free, and you'll get the inside track on this and on future podcast episodes. Thanks for joining us.